wasn't until I crashed in Bern later on, years and years later, that I realised that the war wasn't out there. The war I was searching for was, it was inside me. Welcome back to the Understanding Men podcast, which is basically two guys talking about the things that men could but don't speak about anywhere near enough. I'm Luke Sutton, and I'm once again here with my great friend, Fraser Franks, and thank you for joining us again today. And I would like to introduce you to our guest today, Ollie Ollerton. Ollie joined the Royal Marine Commandos at just 18 and eventually was recommended for SAS Special Forces Selection, in which he was one of five that passed out of 250 people that went into that selection. He then joined the Special Boat Service, the SBS, to qualify as a Special Forces Combat Frogman and was with the SBS for six years. Ollie was part of the original group of former Special Forces guys who featured on Channel 4's SAS Who Dares Wins, which exploded in popularity, and since has written five books, is an experienced explorer, and now helps people in many different ways develop their mindset and their performance. So, Ollie, hi, and how are you? Good look. That's quite an accolade, isn't it? Just quickly, was that introduction in any way accurate? Because I'm slightly yeah. stressing that I might have got a few phrases. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that's all good, mate. Believe me, I hear yeah. some. I hear some really good ones, and that that was bang on. So, mate, that's that's good. There's okay. a lot in there. Yeah, special forces combat frogman. I don't even know what it means, but it sounds so impressive. That's all those boyhood dreams, isn't it? hundred <laughs> percent. Believe you me, today I am very much trying to contain my kind of fanboy um, SAS thing, which I'm sure you experience a huge amount. Right. I want to just kick us off with this question, Ollie. I don't think there can be many organisations, happy to be proved wrong, by the way. I don't believe there's many organisations in the world that live by a more powerful set of principles and values than the SAS or the SBS or special forces in total. So how do you see it for young men in today's society? What you see out there, what's going on, do you think young men or men in general have enough guidance around values, what it means to be a man? How does it look from your eyes? Yeah, I mean, bloody hell, that's a quite a complex question, isn't it, really? But uh, I have to be careful where I tread with this one. You know, at the end of the day, I do think there's a lot of talk out there about toxic masculinity, for instance. Let's let's cover that very quickly, because I actually believe that the problem with toxic masculinity is the lack of masculinity and the misrepresentation of what it means to be a man. On the surface of it, you know, a lot of people think being a man is being able to stand toe-to-toe with someone in a bar and see who's the toughest. And and the representation of what really being a man is, is really, I think it's it's lost. There's no guidance, there's no structure, there's no there's no real real structure for for those that are coming through the ranks, if you want to call it that. And I think I think it's a scary place to be. At the end of the day, children are inspired by the people around them. You know, we are programmed from the years of zero to seven. That's when basically you're, you've got no analytical mind. You're you're basically on record. So we take in our environment. And really, as you can see, as the human species, that's us getting ready for our environment. So we're on constant record. And what that means is we are taking in everything in our environment. So, you know, when people say that our kids are, uh, or they don't know, they're too young to understand. So, you know, and I've been there as well. You know, I, I did that, you know, I, I, a young son and I didn't really understand that principle. Thought, oh, they're just young kids. They don't understand. But in those first seven years, it's absolutely vital that we are the representation of what we want our children to be. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people, you know, there's some people are intentionally going into that space of just their lives are so haphazard and they're so misguided and so they lack so much direction they they don't really know what they're doing 
and they're drinking too much alcohol and they're, they're really portraying all the things that don't display the, the values of being a man. So the bottom line to an answer to the question for me is the fact I think there's a real problem, a real issue out there. And I look at manhood, you know, men today, our role has been stolen from us. You know, a lot of people don't really understand where our purpose lies. You know, we, are, as far as I'm concerned, we are the protectors. You know, that goes back to our early days of first primal steps on this planet. We are there to protect. And that protection, that value of protection has been has been ripped away from us. And that the whole values, I, I feel personally, and I, there's probably a lot of people that would disagree with me, but I really feel that the value of a man is being robbed away from us. And then that obviously mirrors onto the, the, the children we bring into the world. So the bottom line for me is I think it's it's a bit of a corrosive place to be at the moment you know obviously the career that you have gone on to have and still obviously Mm. have did you have this model to you by someone growing up did you feel look I look back on on my relationship with my father and it I don't talk to my father anymore and that was since my first book came out for reasons I won't necessarily go into and and look I've probably put out a few home truths there that he wasn't happy with he left at 13 when I was 13. But, you know, one thing I will say about my father, I do think he f- took it a little bit too far because I was almost like my dad's employee as opposed to his son. But I was regimented in a discipline process. You know, I do feel that I wasn't allowed to be a kid at times. I had, did have this extremely structured and disciplined process of being there, doing jobs, making sure stuff was tidied away. And that was the first thing before it came to me going out and playing with my mates and stuff like that. And I hated that as a kid. So that really was, it was almost like like I was indoctrinated into that military kind of, my dad wasn't military at all, but it was like I was indoctrinated in that kind of environment from an early age. But I tell you what, because it was so intense for me, actually, when I joined the military, I fought against that. It was incredible, really, because I was so it was so structured and disciplined that when I went to the military, I fought against that whole system. So it's and it's only at the back end now where I've come out the back end that I've really started to understand the value of that. You know, my discipline and everything. I mean, discipline is everything. Freedom lives in discipline. That point you've brought up there jumps us forward to, to what I think is something that we've been mm. dying to ask you, really. The fascination, I think, for a lot of people within the SAS is that we just don't know it. You mm. are you are the great protectors. And for the average man, woman, we just don't know it. We don't know what goes on. We don't know what it's about. We do know what it's about, but we don't know the intricacies of it. But that thing there about freedom and discipline. So how does it work for you in that space? Is it, again, it could be quite a naive view. I, I view it as you guys would be so disciplined and so on point, what room is there for freedom of personality or freedom of thought? Or, And that can go in lots of different ways, you know, from mm. the way a guy goes about, girl, girl goes about their business, from getting ready to preparation, to how they communicate, to how, how does it work within that? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And, and I spend a lot of time thinking, well, I spend a lot of time thinking anyway, but, you know, certainly going over my past and, and figuring stuff out, which helps me pave the way for the future. But when it comes to that, I think when it comes to the special forces, like when the special forces were first presented, the concept of the special forces were first presented, they were laughed at. And and what they were basically saying is in the big world of the big green army, where it was all massive resources and assets and everything else, they presented an idea to go in with a group of men that had very limited resources, very low manpower to have a higher impact than all this big, massive, you know, infrastructure and, uh, and assets. And everyone just laughed at them. Now, what they were actually doing was getting a load of a group of men that were, I'd even go above, leaders they're pioneers because they're prepared to lead the way with a courageous standpoint and that is they'll throw themselves at anything without a guarantee of a successful outcome but they were they were given enough rope to hang themselves and that's a very important thing to say because that allowed them the freedom you know there was a rope to hang yourself on but it gave them the freedom to get the job done whatever it took they didn't have to call a higher command to take the shot. It was self-discipline. 
A lot of it was self-discipline. People think that, oh, you're in the special forces. You're absolutely regimented and disciplined and structured. It's not like that. Right. It really isn't. There's a lot of freedom within that. It's quite funny. When I was in the special forces, you know, I come from sort of the Royal Marines, which was quite regimented, the old hierarchical way of, of leadership. And I went to the special forces. I can remember on the first time I saw everyone turn up for parade where you dress in your, your ones, you know, your blues and everything with all your badges and your medals. And I've never seen such a bag of shit. <laughs> when it came, you know, there was like one of my badges I'd glued on in the morning because I didn't have it put on in time. And that fell off as I was walking down to the parade. There was people in like, wrong, you know, brown shoes when they should have been black. It was just like this. And it was just a joke. There was like people with berets with like hair hanging out underneath. And it was just, you just looked across and you just, and really that's it. You know, on the, on the front, on the face of it, it looks like, how the hell do these lot get anything done? But really underneath that, you know, when you're too regimented and too structured, that doesn't allow for any kind of flexibility. You're not dynamic at all. Mm. You've got to be allowed to have that creative license. And that really, for me, was about the Special Forces. I like, I like to say this. I've been thinking about this a lot, right? One of the greatest advantages to the Special Forces was humanity's incompetence. And I've never looked at it like that before, but that is really, and I, I look at that now, it's really the fact that we knew other humans were so slack mm. and so ill-disciplined. That was a massive advantage to us. You know, and I look at that now and think about that in business and everything. And, you know, it's, it's still apparent in every walk and facet of life. Could that extend to how, essentially, if you were a, a crew of guys who had freedom of thought, individuality, could be nimble, flexible, come up with your own plans in different ways, sometimes you knew, or a lot of the times you knew you were coming up against quite rigid structures and essentially other men who are just taking orders and doing what they were told to do. And did that create an advantage for you? Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. When you have a plan and a structure and you're too rigid to that plan and structure, like the, the most of conventional forces out there, you're predictable. And it was, always, it was about being, you know, doing stuff outside the box and looking at a different way to target. Like your route to target, you would go the route to target where people would think that there's no way any man could come that route. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's why we were experts in mountaineering and everything and, and all that, because we would go the direction or the route to target that people would just consider was impossible. Mm. You know, when you have too much planning and structure and everything like that, like I say, you just, you're just predictable. Usually that, that's the flank that they don't bother to cover because they, they just think it's impossible for, for people to come that way, that come that route. Mm. One of the um, aspects I'm quite, fascinated by it is myself and Luke have both talked about being in a sporting sort of changing room environment when you're Mm. literally like a band of brothers like you guys are do you still have those sort of natural humanistic thought processes of self-doubt comparison although these guys were all fighting together am I as good as him is he nervous like I am Mm. like all those kind of things that sort of come into play or has everyone got that that mask up and everyone's sort of hiding it in a different way or some people may not have felt that at all. How was your experience with that? Yeah, no, that, that's another really good question, mate, because I can remember the first time I got attacked outside of the Special Forces in a war zone. It's the first time I really appreciated what it felt like to have that band of brothers around you. Because when you're in the Special Forces, you were so highly trained, so you had that that camaraderie, that brotherhood, you knew every angle was covered and it made you feel invincible. Mm-hmm. And when that was taken away from me, I didn't realise the value of that until it was taken away from me. And then all of a sudden I'm in a, in a war zone, I'm getting attacked and there's only me and one other, we're heavily outnumbered. And I just, it was, it was the worst feeling ever. I didn't think I was going to live that day. But, you know, there are moments, it's not to say that you are just this stone-faced unemotional character you know at the end of the day there were situations where you did feel that self-doubt but it was short-lived self-doubt and fear and everything they're contagious Mm. when that comes to that sort of team around you you can see it you can feel it you can feel that energy with someone else and when that happens you've got the support of your team to pull you up and also it's in that internal each person you know we call it one meter square 
in the special forces. And that is basically when all around you is falling apart, you bring everything back to one meter square and you focus on your immediate environment. You know, you don't allow the bigger picture to overwhelm you. And when you look at, you know, I look into the old mindset stuff and everything else at the moment. When you're not stressed, our, our frontal cortex can deal with five to nine bits of information. When you're stressed, that goes down to one, maximum two. So really, in those moments when you do start to get stressed, the last thing you want to do is start to think of loads of mm. all different stuff because you haven't got the cognitive bandwidth to deal with it. And that's why it's so important. As long as you understand what's going on in those moments and you can feel it within yourself, you know what to trigger. Like straight away, that's as simple in that moment is doing a triage. When things are like spiraling out of control, immediately you can look at a situation and go, I need to deal with just one or two things right now in this moment. When a situation is firing out of control, it wants to grab you at the same speed and energy around the throat and, and rag you around like a little doll. And it's about you being able to take control in those situations and step aside and look above it as opposed to be wrapped into it. Mm. And really a lot of that, to give you a bit of context around that, that's as simple as breathing, breathing techniques. Mm. When you get into a stressful situation, and this, this is adaptable across any kind of situation. This can be confrontation about going to, for a job interview or anything. But simply when you get stressed, you start to breathe erratically you know, everyone knows that. And sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. And what that does is triggers in your body, your fight or flight or freeze response. Cortisol starts to increase. When cortisol starts to increase, what happens is the blood goes from the forebrain to the rear brain. It doesn't allow creative thought. It wants you to work on instinct because the hind brain, it's like a super processor. The front brain is really slow. And that's when stressful situations start to happen. The last thing you want to do is try and think it out. And really, as long as you start to understand how the whole system works, this starts to be very simple to cut off. So when you start to get really stressed and everything else, right, I know what's going on. I know what to do right now. Fear is a mental and emotional rehearsal of something you don't want to happen. You can't allow it to overwhelm you. So at the end of the day, I recognize it. I don't turn my back on it. You appreciate it, but you, you know, just start to control that breathing, box breathing, breathing out more on the exhale than the inhale. It lowers that cortisol, gives you a mindset of mm. clarity and not confusion. And in that, break it down to one meter square, focus on one to two things. Don't allow, you know, all the things you can't control, it's not worth the bandwidth. That sounds a lot, but I tell you, because it is a lot, I broke that down into to three phases, and that's breathe, recalibrate, deliver the action. So I'm not saying that we never have this, oh, you, ne you, you never have fear, you never have self-doubt, because it happens. Mm. But it's just about appreciating it in that moment, not allowing it to consume you, and just appreciate it in that moment, but then allow that process, breathe, recalibrate, deliver, and then triage the situation. Mm. And it works 100%. And everyone, you know, just test it on your road rage. <laughs> everyone has that. All blokes have that. We react and then we drive away thinking, what a twat I am. <laughs> you know, your face is going red because you're feeling all, you know, you feel embarrassed about what you've done. Try for a second. The next time you want to react, and this could be reacting to your kids, it could be reacting to your wife or whatever, just for a second, just take a breath in that moment. And then just wait a second before you react. And a lot of the times you'll then make a decision based on clarity, not confusion, mm. and don't do something you're embarrassed about. And that's what I'm saying. Test it out on all these these situations, whether that's Listen, I have to be conscious about reacting. I really do. Just people wind me up, you know, like in, even in the house, you know, you want to flare off quickly and, and bark or whatever, but sometimes just a breath. In Sandhurst, they, they call it taking a knee. And when you can take a knee in the heat of battle, mm. you've got the upper hand. Oh, I like that little one. I'm going to note that down. Breathing's <laughs> been a, a big part for me. And I do, someone taught me about four, six breathing. So again, breathing, breathing in for four, yeah. exhaling for six. And exactly. I've, I've done a lot of reading around like the vagus nerve and recognizing that that mind body connection and how yeah. it's how it sort of plagued me for so many years. And the timing's quite interesting for this little bit of the conversation, just because of the morning that I've had. And it is, <laughs> I'm, I, I feel honestly, I feel like I'm really good at doing that usually. But today I got really flustered. And exactly what you said there, instead of thinking of the next thing, 
I had 10 different things that I had to do in my head. So I was getting my daughter ready. I was phoning, you know, mm. my ex-wife. I'm trying to ring the school. I'm thinking about this. I'm like trying to get Ollie. I'm messaging Luke. I'm trying to juggle all these things and got myself really overwhelmed. Got myself and then yeah. got myself back on track, got stuck in traffic. Mm. I've turned around. I've come back home. I messaged my mum this morning. I said, everything that could have possibly gone wrong this morning has done. And it's not until I slowed mm. down, took a breath and on my way home where I was like, it hasn't. I've got stuck in traffic. Mm. My daughter's a little bit late. We've come back home. We're driving back past a big crash. There's a lorry on its side. I'm like, I've had the most minor little things this morning that have gone wrong, but I'm worried about upsetting yeah. you guys or being late. But then you breathe and you take yourself out of it and you're like, you know what? It, in the grand scheme of things, it's minor. And that that breathing has allowed me to do that. No, Fraser, I think this is a really good point. This happens to me, right? Like, I'm a positive person. And sometimes people think that when you're positive, nothing ever goes wrong in your life. That, to me, is toxic positivity because it's almost like saying, you know, shit happens in life and you can't control all these things that are happening, but it's how you deal with the situation at the time which changes everything. It's almost like, look at the extreme of it. There's a lot of people out there, oh, just be positive. <laughs> and it's like, your family's just been killed in an accident. Oh, don't worry, just be positive. You can't put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Mm-hmm. It's about how you deal when you're in that situation. And negative things happen all the time. You know, It's the yin and yang of life. When we're in the dirt, how are we positive in that? And that's what makes mm-hmm. the big difference, you know, because you can sit there and start going, oh, my God, this has happened, that's happened. Like you say, the human mind is absolutely, can get petrified of the future. It regrets the past and we barely ever live in the now. Mm. And it's easier said than done, but we have to really start to, to live in the now. I want to delve into the, I, I'm just going to call it emotions or feelings, which I, I'll explain a bit more now. We had um, a guy on a previous episode called Simon Cusden, amazing man. Mm. He, he's a high performance coach for a lot of high powered men, particularly. And he said this thing, which it's really stuck with me at the time and caused, caused a little bit of feeling one way or the other on social media. But he basically said, a safe man is a dangerous man. And what he was trying to say was, which it relates a little bit to your kind of like false positivity and that, that kind of toxicity around that, he was essentially saying a man who isn't honest about who he is and what he's capable mm. of, so he appears safe, is actually dangerous. Whereas a man who's really honest about his emotions and looks at them, whether they are quite scary emotions, you know, like rage or hate mm. or and actually controls and looks in the eye of the storm and pulls them back Mm. and goes, I know what I'm capable of, but I'm not going to act that out because I don't want to be that person or that's not appropriate or right or whatever it might be. That's your safe man. That's your protector Mm. versus the other way. Does that resonate at all with you? Mate, that does. You know what? And this is is a big reflection I had. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to be so careful that you're not pleasing the audience. The majority of people are out there pleasing the audience. They're doing stuff, saying stuff that isn't authentic. Authentic is the strongest frequency to leave the body. There's a recent thing being banging around. Gary Brecker's been going on about it and about the strongest frequency. Look it up in Google, but it's S-P-A-N-E. But have a look in your own time. But the Spain scale of emotion, they put loads, thousands of people in a room and they're able to put electrodes and all stuff. And they're able to measure the frequency leaving the body. And they could measure joy, sorrow, happiness, everything. But the strongest frequency leaving the body was authenticity. Far stronger than love. Everyone thinks, oh, it's got to be love. But it wasn't. It was authenticity. And I think this comes back to that point. It's about being authentic. Mm. I think everyone needs to be, look, the fact that we have to be authentic in everything we do, the things we say, the things we believe, and how we portray ourselves. And if we're not, we're just a shell. And we're just, mm. we're not being authentic to who we are, what we represent and what we're capable of. You know, that resonates a lot. It just resonates so much. Is that a path that you've learned with experience or would you say you've always been authentic? No, I think I think really it's a path I've learned with experience. You know, I've the, the older I've got, the more authentic I've got. 
Again, yeah, like I say, I analyze a lot about the past. And as you know, Fraser, I've got, we won't go into that story today, but you know, I did the chimp attack as a kid. And now I'm looking yeah. at that. And what I did after that is, is quite amazing. After that attack, I was searching for this battle. This is the thing that took me to the Special Forces, I believe, and then took me back to Iraq afterwards. I said I'd never go back to a war zone afterwards. I was going to reinvent myself. And I was searching for this battle everywhere. I want to be at war. I want to be on the front line every day searching for this battle. It wasn't until I crashed and burned and everything. And then 2019, when in, did ayahuasca plant medicine in Costa Rica, one of my visions, one of my journeys was the fact it was, it was stop fighting. And it was the first time I'd actually mm. heard that. It went back to, it went back to the chimp, me as the, you know, being attacked by the chimp. It said in my head, what would have happened that day if I'd not retaliated, not fought? I actually lay down, I died, I went to the spirit world, we won't go into that, but it was it was an amazing experience. But when I came back, it was like this, stop fighting. And that wasn't stop fighting mm. in a war zone. I'd been fighting everything all my life. And I mean the system, my parents, schooling, everything, everything. You know, if you've got strong beliefs, then I believe you should fight for it. But when it's at the detriment of who you are, when you're the one that's being sacrificed, it's something you've got to control. After that chimp attack, I surrounded myself with the hardest people I could. You know, even at school, I, had, I didn't have friends at school. I made friends with this, the hardest family that weren't even at my school. It was such a contrast <laughs> because I came from, we weren't rich, but we weren't poor. We were quite a well-to-do family. But I found the hardest family in my local town and I created a, a friendship with them. And then it would be the same all the way through my life. And then the military, SBS, everything, I created this armor around me i truly believe this is from that that attack as a as a young mm. kid the subconscious mind is influenced by three things generally and that is the first zero to seven years and this is 95 percent of who we are today that first zero to seven years is so influential to who we are the only way you can change the subconscious mind is high emotional impact that can be a good thing or a bad thing high emotional impact your brain actually takes a snapshot that becomes your long-term memory you know, so for me, it's like that was the, the chimp attack. And then also the other thing to change the subconscious mind, as you probably know, is practice, repeat, practice, repeat, practice, repeat. It's the only way you can change that pattern of behavior. That's who we are, 95% of who we are. I really feel that I, I was pushed towards that world because I was trying to protect myself. I was trying to build this armor around me. Like I say, it wasn't until I crashed in burn later on, years and years later, that I realized that the war wasn't out there. The war I was searching for was, it was inside me. Mm -hmm. It wasn't out there. Wow. And I feel we've all got a war inside of us. Do you know what I mean? Unless we can yeah. actually start 100%. to understand any kind of things we want to change in our external world, it's an inside job. Until we understand that, we're, all, we're never, never going to find a solution. Honestly, I relate to that so mm -hmm. much. And yeah, me too. But that honesty with who you are within, yeah. that's not something that should just be said and just let fly away because i think a lot mm. of people can't get there but i think being truly honest about what's within you yeah for me personally has been the, the road to evolving massively like i said before it's it's knowing what i'm capable of being mm. and then understanding that what i want to be going forward but i think that honesty of being able to look within is is enormous yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's it's a realization for me. It was back there, you know. I crashed and burned 2014. Started thinking about suicide, and it was the first time. And I call this my greatest battle, but my greatest discovery because if it hadn't have happened, I'd have still been probably going around in the same repeat habit loop and not getting anywhere. Mm. You know, I'd have still been in that same destructive pattern. I needed to crash and burn for me to really sort of the old part of me had to die. And when I did mm. that, for the first time ever in my life, I actually took responsibility for where I got. You know, we can sit there and we can blame the environment. We can blame the things that have happened to us. Because basically, the way we program, we're, we're programmed to believe that everything is external. Happiness, success. Yeah. Mm. And even when things go wrong, it's never our fault. Rarely do we sit there and take responsibility. You know, things had happened to me. And I could have sat there and blamed that. And the longer I'd have done that, then it would have got, well, it could have got really, really bad in so much mm. as I could have actually yeah. taken the action, but I didn't take the action. And, you know, it was the first time I took responsibility and said, yeah, you know what? 
things have happened to me, but I'm here because of my choices. It's the choices I've made that have got me to this point. And it's the choices I make moving forward that can change that. I, I want to just move the, the conversation a, a, a bit to outcomes. So mm. obviously both Fraser and I have come from professional sport where it was all about results. It doesn't matter really, you know, what you do during the week. If you mm. win at the weekend, everyone's happy. And actually, you know, that's the, the brutal nature of it. But there was also a process or rather a mindset to concentrate on process rather than outcome. Otherwise, you got too obsessed with the outcome and weren't able to just go through yeah. what was needed in order to get to the, the outcome you wanted to. And I think, you know, I, I certainly from a personal point of view, whenever I felt under pressure, and that's why I related very much to that kind of one meter squared thing, I'd go back to the process and not not think about the outcome. However, our outcome was winning or losing games of sport. Mm. Your outcome was the ultimate. It's life or death. Yeah. How do you guys cope with that? I guess is the sim most simple way I can explain it. How do you pull yourself back from getting into that outcome? And and did you need to, or was it a powerful driver to to create an emotion in you which made you perform better? Yeah. No, that's a really you know that relates obviously. I, I I do see your world. You know, I've always said this. We've like when I've spoken to Foxy off SAS. You know, we've sat down and had some deep conversations about stuff. And I've always related your world very similar, very parallel to ours, because not only the fact of, you know, once your shelf life is is up, you've got this massive void, which is a whole another story in itself. But the whole thing about process is the fact that, you know, I used to talk about motivation. I used to have one of my phrases saying motivation and whatever is the key. I, I took that out and I was like, it's not motivation comes and goes. It's motivation's like a muscle. It gets tired, it's, it's, it's up and down. I don't care if you're a special forces soldier, gold medalist, a Premier League football player, whatever you are, you don't have consistent levels of motivation. And that's where discipline and process take over. Now, when it comes to outcomes, you look at corporate structures as well as the organisation you guys came from and the military. At the end of the day, the organisation, the bigger picture, they're focused on the outcome, aren't they? You know, it's easy to say, like, you know, you need to focus on the process and not the outcome. But the bigger picture is you're judged by your outcome, the outcomes. Mm. On an organizational level, it's the outcomes that you're judged by. But when it comes down to a personal level, that is so important to embrace that we do that. We follow discipline and process. We don't allow emotion to really get in the way. When I'm speaking for us, you know, you can't get on the ground and then you're given a mission, go and do this, that and the other. And I think that's really a, a, a really good point around this as well. It's, it's so important that we have a mission statement. Your mission statement in the back of your mind is to win the game, isn't it? Our mission mm -hmm. statement is to, to make sure we get the hostage and come out alive and get everyone home safe. But at the end of the day, you allow that to become a subconscious drive. And that can't be in the forefront of your head. You know, your frontal cortex, five to nine bits of information, one to two when you're stressed. That's why you have to deal in process at that any one, one moment in time. You can't allow your, your frontal cortex to be clogged with all this, the outcome and everything else. So in that moment, when it gets really tough, it really goes back to what I was saying before about that whole one meter square and dealing with the immediate. You know, at the end of the day, things chop and change and they go a different direction. You can't decide the direction when you're... I call your opposing team enemy as well. Mm. You don't know what they're going to do. So you've got to deal with that process. You know, do the best you can in that moment. It's almost like for me going for special forces selection. If I focused on the outcome that I wanted when it was really, the pressure was on, it was so intense. And I focused on all, oh, I want to be one of those five guys that passes this course. My brain is going to naturally start to think of all the things that could go wrong but if i forget that when the pressure's on and just deal with the process the immediate process in front of me that gets me through it yeah i hope that's made sense to you but i just see um a lot of relativity between your world and ours when it comes to that you know your organization wants the outcome but we shouldn't be focusing on the outcome per se we should be we know our mission we know what we've got to do we know what we want to achieve but we deal with it minute by minute in the process 
Luke, you talked about emotions before. I wanted to say this. You know, when it comes to emotion, everything's driven by emotions. And if we can't control our emotions, everything is going to go pear-shaped. And really, this is what I say about emotions. It's so important that we become the emotional observer. Otherwise, we become the victim of our emotions. And that is what I've talked about before. You know, when it comes to fear, when it comes to aggression, when it comes to ego, when it comes to any kind of emotion, we've got to learn to be the observer of those emotions. If you can't control your emotions, you imagine a fast-flowing stream. That's like your emotions. And if you're in the stream with them, you're never in control. It's about being able to jump on the riverbank, look down and control your emotions. Understand that if it's fear, if it's aggression, whatever it is, you've got to be the observer and just say, yep, I understand why you're there and I need to use a certain amount of you, but I'm in control. And that is when you become the emotional observer and not, not the victim of your emotions. I think it's really important that people get a grasp on that because, you know, people think that special forces soldiers, we've got to be so aggressive in this that, and the other. I've seen some of the hardest men confronted in some situations where you'd, you'd expect them just to snap and just go absolutely mental and have so much control and be able to get through those situations, take the step down to be able to deal with it. And it's almost like a gas burner on a hob. It's being able to turn up and down those emotions relative to the situation to get you through it. And being the controller of those emotions will get you through those situations. If you can't control your emotions, you're no use to anyone. Some of the elements that you talk about there that make someone in your position the elite are some of the things that me and Luke have spoken about, which sometimes take, whether it's a high performer, whether it's a, an athlete, an Olympian, a footballer, a cricketer, whatever it might be, what takes them to that top level is usually they're not very balanced. They've got a level of absolute obsession. They are disciplined, but they can be quite cold of emotions. You have to probably, turn, as you said, turn them on, turn them off at times. Some of these skills that get you to that top level in a profession aren't necessarily the best skills for the rest of society when you step away from that career and almost get plonked back into the, the real world or the normal world, whatever it might be. Is that where you see a lot of people struggle that come away from the military? There's, there's obviously the camaraderie, the sense of purpose, the extreme highs and lows, which we compare across sport and military as well. But those aspects that often get you there can also be the things that maybe a lot find really difficult once you do step away from, from being in that environment. Yeah, you know what? I think about that again a lot as well, Fraser. And just if I can relate it to my world, because I actually look at the person I was when I was in the military. I was, I was a, compared to the person I am today, I was an absolute mess in a lot of regards. I could do my job. You know what I mean? I did it really well. But as a, I didn't feel like I was, um, yeah, I feel I was very linear to the role I was, you know the the person I was uh, I was assigned to be. I was I was very linear in that respect. That really hit me hard when I came outside of the special forces, because you know you've got to understand getting people to go to war. You've got to desensitize them, mm. and you've got to get them to be able to handle situations which normally we're not naturally supposed to embrace. Then also the fact that when you're in the special forces, they teach you to be at comfort in chaos. So when you leave, and this is certainly apparent for me, I was chasing chaos everywhere. It took me years to get unravel that. So really for me, and that would then, when I say chasing chaos, I made sure there was chaos in my personal life, my external life, everything, my working life, the whole lot, my relationships, everything. I felt at comfort in chaos. It was peace in war for me. And mm. I feel that's very relative. The same to you, where you know, you're trained with such an obsession. And you're trained to be at the highest level of what you do. It doesn't make you a rounded individual. It makes you very specific to do a certain job to the best of your ability. The person I am today is nowhere near the person I was in the Special Forces. I feel now I would make an absolutely amazing Special Forces soldier. I feel I would be so much better really? than what I did. Yeah, mentally. But the thing is, they don't, they don't want old men that ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> but I find that interesting because I, well, as you were talking, I was thinking, do you need to be that to be successful in something as as elite as the special forces or elite sport? You have to be a bit 
everything that Fraser described, you're not going to be balanced. You're going to be quite self-absorbed in what you need to do, what your mission is. If you've stepped away now and and have a great appreciation of life in in lots of different ways, and you've obviously been been through and are going through a personal journey, could Ollie Ollerton today go back into that world and still be able to do that? Because I I actually look back on myself and I think, I don't know, I'm a very different person to the one that was in professional cricket. Would I have been able to do what I did in professional cricket being where I am now? I don't know, is the honest answer. Yeah. I've changed so much. Likewise. First of all, physically, probably not. You know, it's like I, I, I did a part mm. of, you know, the Penny Van, which is the first march on the Special Forces selection. I actually tried that recently and I'm, I, I consider myself really fit. And it's like I, I couldn't get anywhere near the time, really. Well, close-ish, but, you know, back in then, that was day one of weeks of hell. But so physically, no. Morally, definitely not. I wouldn't go back and do the things that I did because my view on war and everything has changed so much. So no on that respect. But when it comes to my clarity of mind and my mental focus and my understanding of how we work, you know, the whole this operating system works, I think I would just be a lot more rounded as an individual. Like I see myself now probably not as aesthetically representative of this superhuman but i feel i am a superhuman now because i am so Mm. rounded mentally and and just the for me i'm 360 degrees of everything i ever wanted to be and back then i wasn't you know i I was like Mm. a very linear very sort of direct and focused on one specific thing but i just considered myself as well looking back in those days that i was broken i was absolutely broken Mm. even when i was in the special forces i was broken but that's because I dragged a load of stuff with me into the special forces, you know, and that's stuff from child trauma and everything. I look back then and, and I was using alcohol. Now the fact I don't drink at all, which is the best thing I ever did, that whole clarity in mind now, I would never infect the clarity of this mind with any kind of chemical anymore. I just wouldn't do it. And back then I just used to work and drink, work and drink, work and drink. And I was a very... I consider myself very fragile back then to, to the person I am now. Wow. You know, it almost sounds like hard to comprehend because you're in this really alpha male mental world, you know, that I don't know what it's like for you guys, but I felt the pressure to perform was so insane. Yeah. The uh, pressure to perform was almost intoxicating. Yeah, I, I think, well, pressure to perform, I think in... I sort of feel embarrassed to almost compare it to your world <laughs> yeah, that's because what of like. what's at stake. But, you know, but I think that... Not at all. No, but pressure yeah. to perform, I, I think what a lot of people don't see is that it comes in lots of different ways. Mm. So, you know, pressure to perform, yes, is against the opposition or, you know, the enemy. Also, it's within your own team. I've always said to, yeah. to guys who get into professional sport, getting your first contract, I mean, that's great but you have not even begun the battle, really. And a lot of that's within mm. your own dressing room. It's surviving that environment where others fall by the way. You carry on, you carry on, and you get picked mm. and someone else doesn't play. And then there's the, the pressure to perform because it's essentially a public event. So it's like mum and dad will have an opinion and Uncle Nobed might have an opinion at the Christmas <laughs> do, you know, and go, well, you didn't play very well that yeah. day, did you? You know, and there's that type of pressure. Mm. And I guess... There's a public element to how a, a war is going or how a certain struggle is going. Mm. But I think it's really misunderstood pressure to perform. But it's, like I said, I feel slightly embarrassed to compare our world to your world in that sense. You know, at the end of the day, we bleed and breathe all the same, don't we? It's just we're in yeah. different situations. And I know mine was a bit, a bit of an extreme at time. And if you did get things wrong, people got killed. And I think there's finding that balance because, you know, I, I talk a lot about now about failure and how important failure is. And I talk about the fact that if we're not failing, we're not, our goals aren't big enough. And mm. also the fact it's only failure in its most obvious context if we, it stops us heading towards something that we're trying mm. to achieve. You know, when you fail, what did I do well? What didn't I do well? And how am I going to do it differently when I do it again? And what did I learn? What did I learn in the process? And that's the thing that shapes us. You know, now looking back, I've written five books, but I could have written 50 on the things I've fucked up on. <laughs> you know, and it's all those things that make us who we are today, you know. And another thing I'll say is what truly defines you in this life is rarely chosen. 
you know, I chose to do selection. It's the things I didn't choose to do that has defined who I am mm. today. Mm. You know, like I chose to do selection. I chose to go through the interrogation phase and everything, which are really, you know, some of the hardest things. I, I always say that it's the hardest thing I ever chose to do. It wasn't mm. the hardest thing I've done. Mm. But the things that you don't choose, they're the things that really define who you are. Mm. Can I can I ask you, Ollie, would you would you I mean, Fraser and I were talking about this. Actually, we had a, an ex Olympic gymnast on and we were we were talking about I'll just ask you the question. Would you want your kids mm. to go through selection? Would you want your kids to do go on the path that you you went on? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I wouldn't want them to join the military in general. I just don't believe, I don't agree with the wars that, I, a lot of stuff I know now, I understand that, you know, there's a lot of people behind shiny doors in Downing Street sending our boys to war for reasons that are not valid. Mm. War should be the last and final intervention mm. you know i just believe that some of these wars where people are gaining financial i was i was in iraq as a contractor and they talked about how much the war was costing but they didn't talk about how much the, they, they were making from war mm. you know what i mean it, it was just ridiculous it was the wild west there was billions of dollars just being thrown into the country but they were taking so much from the country as well and then i, I see the back end of that where lads are coming home without any limbs and i'm like mm. And then also the fact, you know, especially in my world, you see like lads in the military where there's, you know, they're being done for war crimes. I'm not saying that people haven't done wrong things in war, but I just feel that when it comes to that, there's not been the adequate backup and support. Mm. You know, when you're thrown into a war, you do stuff in the heat of battle that you wouldn't, you're not there to be judged whether it's right or wrong. You do things to, to make sure you and your muckers don't get killed. And I just don't feel we've got, Nowadays, it's almost like health and safety at war. And it's just, for that reason, I would not recommend or advise anyone, my, my kids or anyone, mm, yeah. or my, you know, I've only got one child and, and a stepson, but I would not want them to go through that just because I don't believe, A, you don't believe in, in war, don't believe the wars that we've been pushed into are valid. And thirdly, you haven't got the support and backup when things go, don't go to plan. You know, you said before, Ollie, that you, you work and drank, work and drank. Mm. Is there a drinking culture within that? And what was your, you know, were you using alcohol to suppress those issues that you said you, you brought into the into the military world with you? Or was it just part of the environment or part of having a good time and unwinding? Yeah, both, both of those things that you've just mentioned there, Fraser. It's like, uh, you know, I was born to a massive culture of drinking. I came from a massive culture of drinking anyway, because... I was born in Burton-on-Trent, Staffordshire. It's a brewery town. Family was paid in beer. So I was drinking from quite an early age anyway. You know, it's just part of the culture, part of the life. And then I went to the military. That amplified that. But the thing was, I've now learned, you know, stress is the biggest killer. 90% of people that go to the doctors, it's stress-related illness. Mm. You know, stress is is underrated. It's absolutely... And, and in this day and age, people don't know how to regulate their stress and everything else. Now, all I was doing for years was working hard, working at the coalface, and then thinking that the answer to relieve that stress or alleviate the stress was drinking. And this goes back to my whole business concept. You know, Breakpoint is about stepping into short-term discomfort for long-term gain. This is the typification of the opposite of that, which is stepping into comfort, for, which leads to long-term pain. It offers you a short-term fix, alcohol does, which is that immediate sort of relaxation, any kind of mind chatter going on, it alleviates that because it numbs you out. But it compounds, you know, you pay for it because it's mm. a short, it's a drug. It's a short-term fix. It compounds all those issues. Uh, and that's for me why I kept on drinking. You know, I'd go on binges. I was drinking day after day because I didn't want to face the reality of the mind chatter and everything and everything that was going on. But I came from that culture where it was shut up, just have a beer, let's move on to the next thing. You were trained to believe that any kind of emotion was weakness or showing any kind of emotion was weakness. And I look back on that now. I came out of the military with that view. When I crashed and burned, I didn't go to anyone for help and I'd never recommend anyone to do that. I look back, you know, I had this stupid smile on my face, this smirk, Ollie's the party guy, you know, this, that and the other. And behind the smirk, there was there was so much going on. Mm. But I was I was trying to please the audience and I look back on that now. I was trying to be the alpha male, yeah? I came out trying to be the alpha male, not showing any kind of weakness. And a lot of people are suffering with this at the moment. And 
I look back at that now and think how weak I was for not being able to do something about it when there was so much help and support and everything. And I wasn't prepared. This goes back to what we were saying before, Luke. I wasn't prepared to tap into the emotions of what was going on with me and be able to discuss that with anyone. Mm-hmm. That is where a lot of people are suffering these days. And I believe that's sort of that post-war kind of putting on a brave face and being able to stand up and be the man in the family and this, that, and the other, and not showing any, any emotion. And I feel that that has been further corrupted into this representation of men and who we, and who and what we're supposed to be. Mm. You know, so it's when you start to be authentic and honest and true about who you are, you, you, you recognize your emotions, you're able to talk to other people about that. If you can't do that, you haven't got the foundation, you haven't got the root structure of a strong individual. And when you haven't, you are no use to anyone. Broken people break people. It's so important that we understand that. Yeah, absolutely. I And I want to, just on that, where you were with that last answer, I, I want to finish up with this question and, and it kind of relates back to what we talked about from the very first question. For you today, after everything you've experienced in your life, personally and externally with being in the SAS, SBS, et cetera, what does it mean to you today to be a real man? Uh, for me to be a real man is, you know, I still hold the values of, of of manhood and that is being the protector. For me being a man, it's being authentic, it's being disciplined, it's being true to who I am and being able to recognise my emotions, being able to talk about my emotions, be able to protect the, the, my family around me. So that really means a lot to me. But I think the bottom line is really authenticity, discipline and just being absolutely honest. 100% honest. Brilliant. Ollie, thank you so much. Partly because of my fanboy status of yourself and anything <laughs> SAS related could be here for weeks. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. I've enjoyed it. It's been great. Okay, thanks for listening to the Understanding Men podcast. You can find us on all major social media platforms, including Spotify, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. As ever, we will be promoting every episode via our own personal social media. Please come and find us. We want this podcast to be as interactive as possible. So send us a message, comment, tell us what you want us to talk about, and we'll have those conversations for you. And if you've liked what you've heard, then please go ahead and hit the follow button so you never miss an episode. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please be kind enough to leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thank you and goodbye for now.